Well, church, one of the most common objections to Christianity is, is this, this notion that Jesus being the only way to salvation is really exclusive. It seems unfair. It seems like it's something that uh, in our culture that de desires equality and equity um, uh, is not something that we can tolerate. We live in uh, a really paralyzing time as a culture, do we not? A paralyzing time to where it's hard for us to even speak the truth because what if our truth, this is what the culture says, what if our truth is contrary to their truth, right? So this kind of postmodern mentality has infiltrated who we are as a, as a people. And so, therefore, this idea that uh, Jesus is the only way, the only truth, the only life seems intolerable to our culture. Seems completely intolerable. And, and, and we kind of have this mindset that, that uh, if, if someone uh, dies apart from the Lord and they stand before God someday, we, we have this mentality of God standing there with his arms crossed, right? Standing there with his arms crossed. He's like, hey, you didn't believe in Jesus. And in this hypothetical persons are like, well, Jesus hurt. Who? I've never, I've never heard of them. And he's like, it's too late. And then he casts them far away from them. And that's kind of the, the mindset that we have. And then it was like, man, if that's the case, that seems unfair. That seems unfair. Uh, like someone that, that never heard the name of Jesus, and then uh, they have to get there by the name of Jesus. And so, so therefore, what's, what's going on? What's going on? I thought Jesus was loving. I thought, uh, I thought God was merciful and gracious. And this doesn't seem to be, uh, to be fitting in these categories that we have constructed in our mind's eye. But is that really what's going on? And, and how do we need to address these issues head on? How does Jesus address these issues? How does the gentle and lowly one address these issues? Well, I tell you what, he's not modest about it. Yes, he is gentle. Yes, he is lowly, but his words are not modest. Why? Because he tells the truth. He tells the truth. Moreover, it's a common objection within our culture to basically say this, to say that, you know, we're, we're educated and, and we let everyone kind of speak their, their own truth. And the worst thing that you can do in our society is elevate you elevate uh, 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 an objective truth over all other truths. That's intolerable. That's intolerable. But uh, I want to show us today how Jesus responds in, to all of these objections. How the Bible actually responds to this statement in John 14, 6, whenever Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. All right? So let's dig, let's dig in. Remember the context here. Uh, this, is, uh, this is an ongoing uh, monologue that Jesus is having that's carried over from John chapter 13 and, Ju and Judas had actually just left to go betray him and what Jesus says is now is the time of my glorification now is the time that I am going to lift up my name above any other name now is the time that, uh, th that the most important event in the history of history is about to take place alright and so he starts talking about what's really important and in this, he starts talking about glory, and he starts talking about trying to, for the disciples to try to understand what it means for him to no longer be in their presence, and yet, yet still be Lord, God, and Master. And he starts off in verse 1, and he says, let not your hearts be troubled. But what's interesting about this is that word troubled is the same word that Jesus used about himself, saying, my heart is troubled. Why? Because I'm about to be betrayed. 
And then he's saying, so interestingly, he's saying, you don't be troubled. I am troubled in your place. The thing that I'm about to go through on the cross is going to keep you from ever having to have a heart that is troubled ever again. So right from the beginning, we see the substitutionary death of Jesus really making its way. He says, don't be troubled. I, I will be troubled in your place. I will be troubled. And he says, how, how are we going to deal with this? What is the thing that we ultimately need so that our heart isn't troubled? Do you see what it says? Believe in God. Believe in God. Have faith. You want to know of the cure for an anxious heart? You want to know for the, the cure for a heart that is troubled, filled with shame, guilt, anxiety? It is believe in God. You say, Cody, that's really simplistic. We'll get there. We'll get there. But Jesus says very plainly, he says very plainly, and we should not pass over it just because it's a hard pill to swallow. We should not pass over this because he says, you want to know what the cure for your anxiety is, what your cure for your fears, cure for your troubled hearts. It's believe in God, believe also in me. Trust in God, trust in Christ. This is what our Lord says. Faith is the solution in the Christian life to every single problem. Deeper faith is the solution to every single problem. Let me just go through kind of a montage of verses to kind of capture this real fast. In, in, in 1 John 5, 4, it says, faith is the victory that overcomes the world. In Ephesians 2, 8, it says, we are saved by grace through faith. So our salvation comes through, through faith in God's grace. Romans 1.17 says, and the righteous shall live by faith. And so life in God is found in us growing in faith. And then it also says in Romans 14.23, this, this is a tough one, you all ready? Everything that does not proceed from faith is sin, is sin. And so this montage, what does it show, what does it show us? That faith really is the key to unlock everything that we're struggling with in this room right now. It's the, it's the key to everything. What, what is troubling your heart? The, G, the, the Lord of the universe is saying, do you, trust, do you trust me? Are you looking to me? Are, are you abiding in me? Uh, I have faith every time I, that I get in an Uber that the Uber driver is going to take me to my desired destination. Every single time. What am I actually saying? Am I saying I, I have trust that this driver is going to get me to my desired destination. Do we trust the Lord? Do you trust the Lord? Where is the source of your anxiety, troubled heart, fear? Right there is going to show you the roadmap to where you don't trust God and where I don't trust God. Uh, faith is so crucial, and it talks about it right here. First Peter, you know, or Peter got this in his letter, First Peter uh, 1.8 that Samuel read to us, it says, Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible. What is Jesus saying here? Believe in God, believe also in me. Uh, he's talking to a bunch of Jewish people. A bunch of Jewish people that have devoted their entire life to the, to the Jewish way of life, of trusting in God who is invisible in heaven, ruling over the cosmos. He, he is in charge, and Jesus is saying, dear little children, do you understand what I'm trying to say to you right now? I'm trying to say in the same way that you trust God, I'm about to go, but me and the Father are one. You have to trust me the exact same way. 
Though I'm not going to be in your presence anymore, I'm going to be, I'm going to be uh, the, the same as God. Your trust in me has to be the same that you trust God now because I and the Father are one. Trust him though he is invisible and trust him to, to the point of inexpressible joy. I think that's, a, that's another good thing for us to look at right now. Where, where is your heart not expressing inexpressible joy due to your faith? Due to your faith. You know what that's revealing to you? It's revealing the roadmap of, oh, I'm weak in faith here. I don't actually trust God here. Because what the word says here is true. Jesus says, I am truth incarnate. I am truth incarnate. And whenever you believe and trust this, and you believe and trust me, what you'll see what you'll see is the same faith that you have for God you should have for me. Verse 2 says this. It says, in, in, in my Father's house there are many rooms. The, the KJV, which I, uh, which I love to go to sometimes, says, in, in my Father's house are many mansions. Uh, there's, no, uh, there's no evidence that it should say mansions there. That was just an, uh, an editor's uh, addition to basically say, Surely the houses in heaven are going to be mansions. <laughs> and it, that's, really all, that's really all it is. It literally says here in the Greek that in my father's house are many rooms. And what that's essentially saying is that the patriarch of the family, whenever uh, his sons or daughters were getting married, what they would do is they would establish rooms and build those onto the house. So each, each uh, family member, whenever they got married, would have a new, would have a new apartment kind of set up for them. And they, so they would be one family under one roof, but they'd all have kind of different apartments. And this is what Jesus is setting up here. He's saying that you belong to my family, and I'm making a place for you. I, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And I'm sure this is more than just a mint on the pillow. All right, this is something that's, Jesus, Jesus as the, the, the innkeeper is going to do something amazing, and he's going to welcome us home in a very profound way. I can't, I can't wait for that day. Can't wait for that day. But uh, look what's so important here. He mentions it here in verse 3. He says, if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again, and I will take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. What sticks out there? Is it the mansions? Are you still hung up on the mansions? Like, hey, I think it is mansions. It's probably going to be a mansion that, that, that the Lord is preparing for me in my father's house. Uh, the thing that should stick out to you right here is this. Who are we there with? Who are we there with? Jesus says, where I am, you can be also. That the, the hope of the Christian is we belong to Christ. We get to be where Christ is. And listen to me, listen to me. If we're excited in this room, if we're excited in this room, your excitement about glory in heaven is, man, I can't wait to have a theological debate with uh, Martin Luther someday whenever I get there. Or I can't wait to see those streets of gold. I can't wait to see those pearly gates. I can't wait to see my mansion that Lord, the Lord um, prepared for me. Listen, listen, listen. You're, you're setting yourself up to be in a really dangerous position. Because those that enter into the Lord's glory desire to see the Lord. Their primary motivation for glory is I, Christ is there. Jesus is there. I get to go be with him. And because I get to go be with him, that's what I'm looking forward to. That's what I'm delighting in. He is the way. He is the truth. He is my life. And only those that say he is my life get to see all of this. All of this is just temporary blessings that we'll probably forget about 
just like that. And we'll crave for all of eternity, 10 million upon 10 million upon 10 billion years. I want more of Jesus. I want more of him. I want to be closer to him. We will grow in his love forever and ever and ever. Aren't you excited about that day, Christian? Aren't you excited? He says this. He says, you know the way. He's looking to his 11. He says, you, you obviously know the way. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And then Thomas. Oh, Thomas. If you grew up going to Sunday school, you know uh, Thomas has an adjective in front of his name a lot of times, and it is doubting Thomas. All right? And Thomas, every time he speaks up, I'm sure whenever Thomas is reading this passage, he's like, John, did you have to put that there? We all said dumb stuff. Why are you keep on casting me in this light? All right, why, why are you doing this to me, John? Come on, man. Come on. But look what he, look what he says. Look what he says. Lord, we don't know where, where you are going, for how can we know the way? But I, I want to encourage you, whenever we get to glory someday, Christians, look at me. Whenever we get to glory someday and you see Doubting Thomas, on the, it probably won't be that. Uh, the, the, the name tag as we're going through the corridor of, of the house of glory, our, our Father's house. Uh, don't, don't smirk whenever you pass, pass his door. Don't smirk whenever you pass his door because Thomas set up one of the greatest explanations of life with Christ that, that there has ever been in all of Scripture. There's a reason why John chapter 14, verse 6 is one of the very first memory verses of every single Christian in the world. But John, or Thomas rather, set us up perfectly to say, we don't know the way. And he looks at Thomas, sweet Thomas, and he says this, I am the way, the truth, the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And which brings us back to our dilemma, right? This brings us all the way back to our dilemma. What are the primary objections that people have about Christianity? That's what I want us to talk about. Because one of the, this is one of the primary ways. Are you saying that Jesus really, are you so arrogant to say that Jesus really is the only way to God? Which brings me to my very first objection. The very first objection is this. Claiming that Jesus is the only way to God is arrogant. This is how the world is going to always receive this claim. And in this church, we're asking God to form us into a gospel-centered, a Christ-focused, a Christ-centered, everything revolving around him. We get to glory someday. Why? Because we want more of him, more of him, more of him, a gospel-centered, disciple-making family. That we're going to make disciples together as a family. You know what that means? Making disciples starts starts with taking those that are far from God and helping them understand that Jesus really is the only way to God. He really is the only way to God. So let's ask the question, is this really arrogant? Is this an arrogant statement that we have to, to process through? Is it arrogant to believe that Jesus is who he says he is? I would say no. In fact, I would say it's more arrogant to say that what Jesus said right here didn't really happen or isn't true. Uh, your problem is not with me as the preacher right now, if this, if, if this is something that you're struggling with. Your problem is with the words of Jesus, the exclusivity that Christ claims, the immodesty, because he, there has to be something at the top of every single totem pole, and that, that totem pole is Christ, is Christ. And so it's not actually arrogant to say, you know what? 
you know what? I can't believe you Christians say that there's only one way to glory. There's only one way to God. You don't have a problem with Christians. You have a problem with Christ. This is what Christ has said. Uh, and he might be saying, well, Cody, no, I got, I got a problem with the Bible. I got a problem with the Bible. I don't have a problem with Christ. Everyone in our culture, whether it's a, a secular person that just thinks Jesus was a good teacher, says something nice about Jesus. I was like, I think Jesus was a good moral teacher. I think he was a good, I think he was a good guy. I don't have any problems with Jesus. I, have a, I just have problems with Christians and how they don't act like him and stuff like that. This is what, this is what people say. It was like, well, no, actually, actually, let's be intellectually consistent here. You do have a problem with the claims of Christ. It's like, no, 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 I don't have a problem with Christ. I just like to interpret him the way that fits my fancy. I like to interpret them, him as really a good moral teacher. And really that Bible, you probably can't trust it. You probably can't trust it. Do you know what the very first, uh, you know what the very first, um, uh, uh, I, I, I forgot the word, uh, Adam and Eve, what is it? <laughs> the, very, the very first temptation. Oh my goodness, that, that was so far away. <laughs> Whoever was praying for me right there, thank you. Thank you. Keep on praying. Keep on praying for me. The very first temptation, the very first temptation of the entire Bible that, that Satan gives to mankind is this. Did God really say? Did God really say? And, and that comes up in every single culture, in every single place, everywhere that the Bible is proclaimed, taught, and preached. The, the, the primary intellectual disagreement of what's going on is this. Did God really say that? Can you really trust that God has the ability to preserve his word through a written book? How, how silly, how silly is it that you could actually trust that the Bible is the inerrant, infallible word of God? That's, that is absolutely ridiculous. And, and what is that? That is a new version of did God really say? The very first temptation that has entered into the world according to the Bible is the one that comes up over and over and over again and is the one that you and I wrestle with day in and day out. It's the, it's the one thing that troubles our souls on an ongoing basis because whenever we see that we're supposed to rejoice, <laughs> rejoice in the Lord, we say, no, life is hard. You don't understand the suffering that I've been going through. And what are we saying deep in our heart? We're saying, did God really say I'm supposed to have joy in all circumstances? You don't know this government, right? You, 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 don't, know, you don't know the suffering that I've been going through in the past year. You don't know uh, the comparison between me and my friends and how I, I just wish I had everything that they had. And I just feel like every single one of my prayers is just bouncing off the, the ceiling of my house and coming right back down and God didn't care. All of that is this. Did God really say it's the repetitious lie of the enemy and it affects me and you over and over again but the bible says this the bible says that the very all of god's word all of the scriptures are breathed out by god they're breathed out by god and so if you're a christian in this room and you're saying i believe in the resurrection but i don't believe the bible listen listen what's going on there why would you believe the resurrection the Bible is the thing that testifies about the resurrection. 
So if you have, can believe that Christ has risen from the dead and yet you are struggling with how the, the Bible was placed together, if Christ resurrected from the dead, listen to me, church, if Christ really did resurrect from the dead, you, it's an easy thing for him to preserve his word throughout all of, all of human history. That's an easy thing. He beat death. He walked out of the grave. He was dead for three days. If he can do that, of course he can preserve his word. And so every time we doubt it, what I want to happen within this body is to say, oh, I'm believing a lie. A lie just popped in my head. Uh, and, and we're like, where, where do lies come from? What does Jesus say? Earlier on in John, what does he say? Uh, Satan speaks his native tongue. Lying is his native tongue. The only thing that the devil tells us is lies. The only thing that he tells us. And they prop up in every which way. We say, Cody, all right, uh, Christians believe the Bible, I get that, but aren't, aren't you really like just not seeing the full picture? What about people in Madagascar and what about people in Papua New Guinea who have never, who have never heard? Uh, I, I heard this uh, analogy in college and probably you have heard this analogy too. They're really all religions and the road to salvation is like four blind men falling into a pit trying to figure out what an elephant is. Have you heard this? Uh, four blind men fall into a pit, and they're, they're touching the side, so one of them's grabbing a trunk, and he's like, oh, an elephant's kind of like, uh, is, is kind of like a, a weird vine that you, you can hold and kind of moves around, and, no, and, and one of them's touching the side of the wall, and it's like, no, an elephant's really like a wall. That's what a, an elephant's really like, uh, just a wall. And one of them grabs a, the, the, the tusk, and he's like, no, an elephant's kind of shaped like a spear. That's how an elephant, that's really what an elephant, another one grabs a tail and is like, no, it's like a broom. It's like a broom. This is, this is what an ele elephant is. And the, how the, the moral of the story goes is uh, someone's outside of the pit and says, no, it's an elephant. And if y'all just all humbled yourself and saw the full picture, then you would realize what an elephant actually is. It's a combination of all these things, and this is what uh, our world says. All religions are virtually the same, but they're only seeing one part of it. And because they're only seeing one part of it, if they would just humble themselves, then they could actually understand the fullness of the elephant. Well, this guy named Leslie Newbigin presented two problems with that. You've probably heard that scenario before, but he says there's two problems that completely turn this parable as debunked within, um, within uh, our, our consciousness. And number one is it's this. The moral of the story is you are being exclusive. You are being exclusive. And if you just humbled yourself, humbled yourself to see the fullness, um, to, if you could only see what I saw, then you'd have a fuller picture. Well, the narrator of the story is claiming for himself, is claiming for himself what he's denying to the blind men in the pit. It's like, if you were just like me, super enlightened and super inclusive, then you would see that really all roads lead to the same place. And he says, you are being a hypocrite. If you, if you espouse to this type of parable as kind of the coexist understanding of all religion, you're being a hypocrite by denying to each individual um, religion what you profess for yourself, which is, I see the full picture. They think they see the full picture, but they don't. So number one, he says, anyone that says that all religion is like that is a hypocrite. Number two, he says, what if the elephant all of a sudden started speaking? What if the elephant started to speak and said, hey, I'm an elephant, you're touching my side, you're touching my tail, you're touching my, uh, my tusk, you're touching my, my trunk. 
Uh, Christianity, and this is why he brings it up, because he said Christianity is essentially that God has spoken through the man Jesus Christ and said this is what God is like. Uh, the person and work of Jesus is this, is exclaiming to the world, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. The elephant spoke and declared who he was. God has spoken in the person and work of Jesus Christ, declaring that, that the only way to salvation is found directly through him. Does that make sense? Are, 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 you, are you with me there? Uh, that's essentially all that Christianity is. All that Christianity is is declaring that Jesus spoke as the, as the incarnate deity, the maker of heaven and earth. His words were the very words of God. And so therefore, we have the option. We can either reject this altogether, say, no, I don't think that. I like to, I like to make Jesus into my own kind of Jesus. I like to make Jesus into my own kind of moral conformity. I like the, I like, uh, it's what Ricky Bobby said, I like the baby version the best, right? I was like, I, I like him. I, like, I, I, I don't want to think of Jesus in any other way other than my personal, personal preference. But Jesus says, There's, you cannot do that. You cannot do that. You have to receive me. I'm the God of the universe that came into existence and spoke to all of mankind. And so, really, providing the way in understanding this, if you have adopted this as a Christian, it's not arrogant to say that Jesus is the only way. It's actually quite humble. Because Jesus is not laying down a philosophy for us to follow. He's not, he's not laying that down. He's just like, follow the Ten Commandments and the Apostles' Creed and all of this, and then you'll be able to earn your way to heaven. No, the way that Jesus provided was this, pure grace. And anyone that trusts in me can come. This is, this is ultimately quite humble. This is ultimately quite humble. Or I love the way that Tim Keller puts it. He says, all religions are exclusive. Every single religion is ultimately exclusive. But Christianity is the most inclusive exclusivity there is. It's the most inclusive exclusivity there is. Whoever, whosoever will, come. Whosoever trusts in him will have eternal life and he will go and prepare a, a, a home for you in his father's house. And this, whenever you believe the gospel, what it ultimately does is it humbles you down into the dust and you don't have this air of superiority about you. You start treating other people the way that Christ has treated you. You offer forgiveness when people wrong you. You offer grace whenever, whenever things are not going the way that you desire for them to go. You start to take on the characteristics of our Lord. Why? Because he becomes your life. His way of living becomes your way of living. His way of thinking becomes your way of thinking. And this is what the Lord does. Uh, what's uh, one of the greatest um, tragedies in the history of um, the U.S. Um, happened in October of 2007, whenever I was a senior in high school. Uh, there was an Amish community in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You probably remember this. And it's a horrific story of a gunman coming into an Amish schoolroom and um, taking 10 girls in front of him and says, I'm going to kill all of you. Um, two girls stepped forward and said, why don't you just kill us and you let the other eight go to the gunman? Apparently, whenever they said that, he went crazy and he ended up shooting all of them and then he turned the gun on himself and he killed himself. Five of them survived the shooting and that's how we get... That's how we get that, that story. But here's my, here's my question. Where did this Amish community 
learn? Where do these 10-year-old girls learn to step up and say, take my life instead of their life? And the story doesn't end there. Uh, there was a, they, one of the fathers and families that um, had a daughter killed, um, got in their buggy, because that's what they do, and um, rode to uh, the house of the, of the wife who had murdered all the children. And whenever they got up there, um, they said, we're not here for revenge. Um, we lost a daughter, and it grieves us. But you, you lost a husband, and your children lost a father as well. And so we're here to grieve together. Where did these people learn to offer grace and mercy and to offer forgiveness? Obviously, obviously, it comes right here from this passage. Jesus says right before this, he says, a new commandment I give to you, love as I have loved you. A a new commandment I give that you love one another just as I have loved you. And the people in 2007 of God, even though uh, the Amish community is very, very fundamental and unique in the way that they express faith, but they knew at the heart of Christianity was a man dying, a substitutionary death. A God offering forgiveness even whenever there's rebel traitors against him. They, they, have internalized this so, they have internalized this so much that it was reflective, reflexive in their life. And you know what this means? You know what this means? Whenever you follow Christ, you start to take on the attributes of Christ even in the, the, the deepest, darkest pain. In the deepest, darkest pain. Life with Christ begins to envelop you, transform you, change you to where he is your life. And there is no, no such thing as an arrogant Christian. Uh, some people think that uh, people that really, really believe Christianity are those that are arrogant with the claims of Christ. No, no. Those that are arrogant with the claims of Christ, they probably don't even know him. And they're using the gospel. They're using the gospel as a source of power to have control over people. No, what the gospel does is it humbles you down into the dust and you take on the person. You take on the person of our Lord, Master, Savior, and friend. So objection one, does this make you arrogant? No, it does the exact opposite. It humbles you. It humbles you. And so to those that are struggling with this right now, I encourage you, be intellectually consistent. Be intellectually consistent. Everyone has exclusive claims about what, what, um, what it means to be connected to God. All right? Uh, there, there is no, there's no ways around it. But the person and work of Jesus is the most inclusive exclusivity that the world has ever known. So what's the next? Here's my last objection that I want us to, to, to wrestle with today. It's this. And you probably experienced this. In, uh, in our culture, that religion is a matter of personal preference. Religion is not objectively true for anyone. It's just a matter of personal preference. And so it's, it's like saying, like, oh, you know what? I, um, I really like Starbucks over collective. You're wrong, but who am I to judge? You know, who am I to judge what type of coffee you actually, what, what, what you actually like? Or if you, if you say, you know, like, what's, I, I subjectively like going out into the wilderness and, and finding uh, solace and silence um, out there, and I, and I feel uh, rejuvenated and refreshed. Or if you like to go to a, a rock concert and, and get in a mosh pit, who am I to judge? Who am I to judge? The question is this. The question is this. Is, does religion 
or following God fall in that category of subjective preferences? Or is there an objective reality that we have to find? Is there an objective reality? Because what Jesus says here is he's saying that there's an objective reality that you have to submit to. There's an objective reality that you have to submit to. The gospel is not new philosophy. It's not following a set list of rules. It is not that. Our our morality cannot help us get right with God. Our philosophy cannot help us get right with God. Religion cannot help us. If you live 10,000 lives, say the whole karma thing is true, you cannot get right with the holy, perfect righteousness of God in the Bible. There is nothing you can do. There's absolutely nothing you can do. But what the gospel explains to us is that he, being Jesus, lived the perfect life that you and I should have lived. He lived the life that you and I were supposed to live but could not. He died a substitutionary death. He looked at your rebel status and said, no more. That I have, a, I have a house, I have a mansion, I have a room with their name tag on it, and I'm going to do whatever it takes to go out and get them. And if that means I have to die for the penalty of their sin, so be it. Put me on the cross, Lord. I love them too much. And the gospel is that, that he died a substitutionary death. And then he resurrected from the grave saying, look, your sin is no more. It's been cast as far as the east is from the west. There is no reason for us to live under the tyranny and lies of sin. Because my people belong to me. I will be wounded for their transgressions. I will be crushed for their iniquity. The chastisement that they deserve has fallen on me. Though they were scarlet, I will wash them white. They will be clean. They They will be new. And this is what our Lord says to us. Faith in Christ revealed in the plain understanding of Scripture is the only way to peace with God. Is the only way to peace in this life. The lies that you're believing right now can only be combated with faith in the finished work of Jesus on your behalf. He is a personal God, a personal God. He's not a God up there twiddling his thumbs. He's not the God that says, Jesus, who? Get out of my presence. He's never been like that. The God of the Bible says, come, come to me. I'm right here washing your, ready to wash your feet. Look to me, acknowledge me. I, I am the true personal God. We do not reject God within our culture because he seems too aloof or distant. We, we reject God in our culture because he's too close, right? He's too close. He's too much up in our space. We think we need psychology to help us get through our problems. We don't. We need faith, faith in the person and work of Jesus. This is what we need. The gospel is the only way. Or I love how Peter says it whenever he was put on trial and standing before the Sanhedrin. He says, there is salvation in no one else for there is no other name given under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. This changes everything. This changes everything. This is objective, ultimate reality. What the Bible is presenting is not a list of dogmas. It's presenting you a worldview that has to be consumed in its totality. Consumed in its totality. And this changes how we think, not just about him, obviously. I'm talking a whole lot about our connection with God, but it changes how we engage with each other. It it, it changes how we engage with our neighbors, how we engage with those that are far from God in our sphere of influence. It, it, It transforms everything. 
Charles Spurgeon was once asked a question that you probably asked yourself. And it's the question that I presented at the very beginning. He says, someone asked, will the heathen, which is this, he, was, he lived a long time ago. <laughs> um, will the heathen who had never heard the gospel be saved? Yes or no? And Charles Spurgeon looked at him and said, it is more a question for me whether we who have received the gospel and failed to give it to those who have not, can we be saved? Can we be saved? That's why we're called to be a gospel-centered, disciple-making family. The transition that happens when you have faith in the gospel is you look at people differently. Not arrogantly, it was like, they know where the church is, right? If they want to go to church, they can go to church. Really, it's on them. It's on them. No, no, that's not us believing the, the message too fervently. That's us not believing the message that we were once dead in our trespasses and sins, disconnected from God, completely disconnected. But God, who is rich in mercy, said, I'm the way, revealed to himself what the way was. Uh, salvation was given. It's a free gift of grace. And so whenever we are looking at those that are far from God, our natural inclinations as Christians is to say, how can I give them what has already been received to me? I, I guess God has put people in my life. I, I, I know God has put people in my life that are far from God because they want them, God wants them to know Christ. And praise God, I met a new, a new person that doesn't know Jesus. And guess what? Our first inclinations of our hearts whenever we believe the gospel is obviously they're in my life. Why? So that I can show them the good news of Jesus. I can show them that Jesus is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. We don't all have to do it at the same pace. We all have different gifts given to us by God. But guess what? Guess what? You and I are, are saved for a purpose. We're never, can you imagine? How arrogant is it for us to say, you know what? I believe the gospel and there's a whole mechanism of, there's probably a hundred different stories of how you came to know Jesus in this room. But it all has a backstory of God working and planning and moving and connecting this preacher or get, give, having someone give you a Bible or placing you in this family so that you would know and believe. Have you ever thought about that? How arrogant would it be for us to be like, well, I guess it just needs to stop with me. Why should I tell anyone? Why? Do you get the point I'm trying to make? Do you get the point? Christ saves us for a purpose. And that purpose is the exaltation of Jesus Christ our Lord. How did God exalt Jesus? He put him on the cross and he died for you and me. How do we exalt Jesus? We testify. We witness. We organize our lives around the great commission of God. Dear friends, this is the call this morning. Jesus is the only way. He is the only truth. He is the only life. No one, no one. Think of your friends. Think of your family. Think of your mom. Think of your dad. No one gets to, to the Father except through him, except through the message and faith of the gospel. This is our call. This is our call. So how should we respond? I think with tears and with repentance say God I've heard this passage I got this passage memorized but it's never affected my heart 
may today it affect our hearts and transform how we live. Listen, I was telling Chris this earlier, and this wasn't in my notes, Chris. Thank you for letting us talk. Um, I was telling Chris this earlier, but all of us make plans for the things that we feel like are necessity, necessities in our life. You know, like whenever you are hungry, what do you do? It's like, well, I guess I DoorDash, you know? I, I, I DoorDash, or I go to the grocery store, or I instant cart that, or I do grocery pickup, Walmart pickup, I do, do this thing. And he says, and it's just so easy, I don't really have to think about it. No, no, you prepared for everything. The thing that was important to you, you have prepared for it. You download it. Now it's a little bit easier. We used to have to gas up the car and then go to the grocery store, then walk around and try to find. Guys get lost in the grocery store. It's like, I don't know. Didn't even know there's signs up here. All right, but you prepare. You prepare to feed yourself. You prepare to feed yourself. Now it's a little bit easier, right? But you still got to download the app. You still got to type in your login. All right, you prepare for the things that you need you prepare for the things that you need how are you preparing yourself for the mission and purpose purposes of god if it was valuable in your life you have a plan and a set structure to uh, to figure out how you how you can execute the things that you need listen dear friends dear friends you need this you want to wonder why uh, christianity hasn't really worked has it really worked for you? Have you ever risked by having a friend over and praying your head off like crazy and saying, I'm going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to talk about Jesus. I'm going to talk about Jesus. And then you do it. The vitality that the Holy Spirit brings into your life whenever you live out the mission of God changes you forever. It keeps the, the ball of your faith continually running down the hill. Are you stagnant right now? Live for the mission of God. Do so in the context of community, okay? And you will, I promise you, I promise you, God's word dec decrees this, inexpressible joy with the King of kings and the Lord of lords awaits those that enter into the harvest of the Almighty. Let's pray.